Good evening, everybody. Good evening. We hope you're having a lovely Monday night and a good start to the week. And thank you very much for joining us for another Gather Mentor Room Live. And I've learned from looking back at the past recordings that there is no need to do big grand introductions to the, the excellent guests that we have each time because everyone does their homework and they have a look and check out the guests in advance. So uh, to maximize the time that we get to tap into their experience and their future thinking brains and ideas for the future of our golf industry, I will um, allow you, I will just do a very brief introduction um, and say welcome to the stage, Nicole Wheatley and Jojo Reagan. How are you doing? All good, thank you. Very good. Jojo, nice to see you. Thanks very much for having us. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. Like, thank you so much, both of you, for taking the time to do this. Um, it's much appreciated. And we've got questions from quite a lot of different members. So um, as we always do, we'll keep this free flowing. Um, and please do, if you have a question, you can drop it in the comments underneath the live video feed that you're watching on LinkedIn. Um, I should get an alert about that. And if you've got some great questions, we can then ask the guests. And we're going to kick off, though. We're just going to jump right in and we're going to start talking about company and brand building and collaborations. So uh, Nicole, I'm going to come to you first. How, there's a question from Sue Shapcott. Thank you, Sue. How big in terms of sort of rev revenue and profit wise, do you think a company needs to be to think about investing in a PR or marketing company and making it worthwhile? Obviously, we know you have to invest in these things to grow, but is there a kind of a rule of thumb? Um, I think a lot of it's down to personal choice, obviously, but in my opinion, if you're really good at doing the job that you do or running the business that you run or providing the service you do, then why would you want to waste your time doing something other than what you're expert at? You know, um, we all have limited time to be able to run our own businesses. And, you know, I look to experts outside of my business to help me achieve my clients' goals if we don't have the expertise in-house. In, in it's one of those things that, you know, how is your time best spent, I guess, is the question. And I think you'll suddenly realize that if you know you're spending 25% of your time marketing your business and only 75% of your time actually delivering the service that makes you money, then you have to start asking yourself a question of whether or not that's the best use of your time. Yeah. And Jojo, obviously, uh, prior, many people may know this if they checked out your profile, but prior to doing Manners, which is probably what a lot of people in the golf industry would know you for now, um, you worked in sort of marketing and, and branding side of things as well. Uh, what's your angle on this? I think Nicole's definitely got a really good stance in that it's about um, where you spend your energy throughout the day, especially as a founder, you've only got so many hours in the day. Um, and I guess... From our side, as from Manners' perspective, you know, we we went at it as um, with the, the kind of forethought that if we wanted to do this properly, we wanted the best people around the table. Um, and whilst I definitely have um, a, a great foundation, I still didn't know necessarily all the answers when it came to actually deploying strategy for launching an e-commerce brand. Um, you know, building the network within the wholesale market. You know, and the connections there. So. I think that the one thing that is very, very difficult to um, to sell from an agency side is your connection and your your connection, yeah. your black book, um, mm. and that to me is definitely where I found the most value from hiring agencies, um, and definitely the most value that I can bring, um, I or did bring when I was on the agency side. No, That's I can. 
I was going to yeah, say so I, com I completely agree. I think you get to a point when you when you're on an agency side of things that you the people that you know are as valuable as the service that you offer. And like you said, you can't really put a price on that. And trying to convince clients, particularly in the golf industry, where they don't really think in the same way as uh, other industries tend to, it is hard to put a figure on that as well because your time is valuable, but your knowledge and your ex expertise and the contacts that you have are also equally valuable. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I wonder, Jojo, do you think because of your background and what you did prior to doing manners, you understood the value of that when you were thinking about setting up what might be termed as a, a sort of independent brand to begin with. There's a lot of other people that are doing kind of small independent brands, whether it's clothing, clothing or other um, you know, accessories or whatever within the golf industry. I wonder whether they also see that value at that early stage or, or you know, they're really doing things from bootstrapping. So therefore, it's like, how can we really afford to bring in you know, expertise in this area in the early stages? But your, your background maybe informed you that that's actually critical for you to do to get it right. I think what it gave me the best insight in is that as an agency owner, you'll get lots of people knocking on your door um, with great ideas, but not necessarily with the capital to deploy them properly. And if you, if they don't have the money to deploy a marketing strategy, they probably don't have the money to correctly execute on product, uh, on social strategy, on, on lots of other things. So actually people think of it, think of it as the client holds all the power, but actually you know, good agencies will be will say no to, to brands because they don't actually believe they can do good right for them, right? And it doesn't matter if someone if I can convince someone um, from the agency side, if I convince someone to spend two and a half grand a month with us, but they didn't then back that up with good product, good content, then I would do a terrible job. And then in turn they'd never sign on again. And that yeah. would then be an unhappy customer. So it's like I, I came at it saying, well, I'm only gonna hire an agency. You know, when we did hire a PR agency, we we shopped around like to 10, 12 different agencies. And I went then I said, this is my budget. This is what I want to get out of it. And I was very, very direct because I knew that if I didn't give them that information, they wouldn't be able to offer this, uh, a, a good service. Mm -hmm. So if people don't have, let's let's think about the, the, a lot of Gather members actually that are starting small, um, small businesses, trying to do new things, trying to do good things in the golf industry, Nicole, and what can help them make that jump in understanding um, in addition to this conversation, if they listen into it, hopefully, um, if they've not got that background that Jojo's got to understand, you know, it really is worth thinking about this. How do you help bridge that? And is that part of what you find yourself doing as a sort of an ongoing thing with your own? So you are branding and marketing for other people, but you need to, you know, you need to have a brand and market yourself and so that people can understand, well, why you would even think about this if you've just started a small business? Yeah, um, one thing that we always get new clients in particular to think about is what their objectives are you know what, what would success look like for them in a year's time and if we can't help them fulfill those objectives like Jojo said within the budget they've got then we we actually won't take people on it you know we don't want to there's a lot of agencies out there who've given PR um, and marketing a really bad name because they've promised as it was put to me, promise the moon on a stick um, and you can't deliver it. So, you know, we, we're always asking questions of our clients, like what what will success look like? How can we get there? And then we come up with a strategy that that will 
that will achieve their business goals, their business goals at the end of the day are the most important part in this relationship. And, mm -hmm. you know, as the golf media landscape is changing quite dramatically, sometimes their objectives just aren't attainable, whether they did mm -hmm. it themselves in house or whether or not they employed an agency. But my role is to sit there and be really frank with them and really transparent. You know, I don't want to raise people's hopes um, unnecessarily. And, you know, if a product or a service isn't going to get the exposure that they expect it to, then mm -hmm. it's down to me to make sure that they understand that. Um, the other thing is really about setting um, KPIs. And we don't talk a lot about this in the golf industry, but KPIs and objectives and measuring success and having the courage to test things. Um, you know, there's a very kind of traditional route to marketing in golf where people think well this is the way we've always done it and this has worked and I've hit my bottom line so therefore I'm just going to do the same thing again and there's not that ambition to grow beyond that um, and that's what we really try and help our clients think about is okay so this is what you've done but you know for your brand to grow you've got to look at the next steps and it's about moving forward and also looking back at the foundations you know if you're a small business who say set up over the pandemic and you rushed to market because you were kind of encouraged by the the boom in golf and that opportunity um the likelihood is you didn't get your foundations secure in the first place so now is a really good time to go back and look at your brand and look at your website and see how easy you are to work with because if you're not easy to work with and you're not easy to find then it doesn't matter what i'm doing over here because you know you're not yep. going to get the return on the investment and that's what's key to a successful kind of agency relationship is that return on investment mm -hmm. yeah great okay um to switching on the same tack but switching a little bit to talk about the collaboration kind of angle um jojo something that uh, manners is people in the golf industry will be aware of and, and it was within doing my research for this i realized it was almost sort of two years to the day when you launched and then you announced the collaboration, which is quite cool in terms of a sort of PR piece. But you've had obviously this very notable collaboration with a really huge, um, you know, sports and, and clothing brand in Adidas. Uh, what do you think you did differently to achieve that collaboration that maybe a lot of other smaller businesses or independent type businesses in the golf industry um, have maybe you know, not being able to do. And I think I shared this with you in advance, this question, because I was wondering, is it just a case of asking? I mean, is there, is there maybe a lot of people that don't even think of, you know, there might be an opportunity for those bigger, huge agencies to, uh, huge companies to actually want to collaborate with smaller partners. So what, what's your thoughts on that? It's, um, there's definitely no secret sauce, but I think what's important is having, applying a flag in the ground and saying, very clearly this is what we're about so as a brand we weren't shy about um not conforming and i think that is um that in itself is is quite a scary thing to do because um you know you go you go out there with your with your product especially before we'd even launched um and we'd um you know we made it very clear that we weren't willing to 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 conform because we felt like we could see golf in a different way and that wasn't because we wanted it to change and suddenly everyone had to conform to us it was just that we felt like we could portray in a different light um so when it came around to the adidas opportunity i mean you know again you know you said it there if you don't ask you don't get and we came up with a great concept um that um our team creatively did a really really good job on and we just felt like it, it deserved to 
to, to hopefully have um, a, a bigger voice involved because ultimately at that point in time, you know, when we initially came up with the concept, that was a year after we'd launched, right? So we didn't launch this project till two years after, but there's a year's worth of work that goes into it. Um, and uh, we came up with the idea and, and I just thought, you know, let's, let's, try and, let's try and make something happen here. And, you know, luckily we were able to, to, to speak to the team Adidas and Chris Hedman there who, um, you know, his team was, had such a great vision. Um, they genuinely looked at golf and said, not just we're going to do stuff to make it look like we're making an effort to change the perception, like we're actually going to put our, you know, money where the mouth is, I guess, in a way. Um, and ultimately, they also had to like the idea, which they did. Um, so next thing you know, you know, we, we, we cooked it up and, and turned that around. So I think if I was to cordialize that into a couple of points, it's we were different. We were different enough to Adidas that made them want to make it possible to work with us, you know, because obviously we're not looking like a direct competitor. We gave them an opportunity to activate with a different audience, potentially to who might consume with them originally. Um, and then ultimately the concept was a nice enough one that they liked it and um, it was creative enough to kind of really show golf in a genuinely different light. And so I think that kind of merged, merged together into something that was exciting and then we executed on it well enough that we got people to buy into it as well. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd like to both your thoughts on this really, but Nicole, based on your experience and all the, you know, looking back at your client list um, on your website, you know, you've got this amazing range of uh, small golf businesses, medium golf businesses, large brands, and then also like governing body type organizations that you've worked with as well. Um, and, and I know you've done sort of collaborations with media agencies um, to big media agencies in, in GB and I. Do you think that there's a missed opportunity here for more collaborations that you know it, it, that might happen in another industry? But you know the sort of thing that Jojo's talked about there. Do you think there's this could be happening a lot more across golf? Is it a missed opportunity or not? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that it's really. I think collaboration is a really, really interesting way just to grow interest in golf. You know, when we talk about kind of trying to reach. A younger generation or a different generation that doesn't consume traditional media if we know there's a brand that they're already engaged with then collaboration collaborating with that brand makes complete sense and we do see it a lot more frequently in um other sporting arenas in particular um because they, they can be i think they just have a little bit more freedom you know um golf is a little bit scared to get it wrong so they don't like jojo said they don't ask and if you don't mm -hmm. ask you don't get um mm -hmm. but i think it's having the confidence like you said having the confidence in your own brand as well to know exactly what you are and what you stand for and to mm -hmm. be able to take that collaboration forward but yeah I, I think it's i think it's a really important thing and you know certainly some of my clients have been doing that and looking at opportunities to collaborate um in terms of the fabrics that they use and being really transparent about um, where they're sourced from and then giving people the opportunity to use sustainable fabrics as a collaboration piece. So, yeah, I think mm -hmm. this should be a lot more of that kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. I mean, my, my personal view would be that there's there's more opportunity in probably all sectors of the golf industry for mm. better collaboration in many ways as well. Um, Jojo, based on your experience then from you know pre-manners, you know, being a golfer and then coming in and doing what you've done with manners, um, do you feel that things are still the way they are in the golf industry and the way that you encountered them when you were trying to set up manners back in 2019. I mean, it's, it's maybe a difficult period to judge because of the pandemic, but do you 
you know, you mentioned earlier one of the things there about why you set it up and the mission was to try and sort of bring new people into the market, change perceptions a little bit. Do you still feel that there's a need to do that just as much as when you launched or do you think things have changed? I think that when we first had the idea, it was 2018 and the game, when I was telling people that I had an idea for doing something different in golf, we were... Um, we weren't greeted, uh, let's say, with as open arms as if I would have had that same idea today. But the difference is if I'd had that same idea today, um, I'd be going into a much more competitive space. And, you know, we were lucky. Um, you know, I guess you make your own luck in some ways as well. But we were lucky in that we identified this in 2018. There was definitely an undercurrent, but with very few people in the market. Um, we were then we then became part of that undercurrent and um, more so that's become less of an undercurrent and more of a, of a wave um, of which we were kind of at the tip of um, alongside lots of other good brands. So what I would say now is that if you entered the golf market as a new golfer with as part of this this rise in participation, you'd be welcomed with a lot broad a lot broader range of golf mm -hmm. types, whether that be you know uh, your pitching parts you know things like top golf um you know or, or just tee to green opportunities but also your first experience of a golf brand won't necessarily be walking to a golf pro shop and seeing what's on offer there you know i don't have a, a, any you know no no offense to the standard golf pro shop but it's not necessarily something that inspires um much inspiration um you know and it hasn't probably evolved very much um now you might come across a brand like Manners or a number of other brands and go, oh, wow, this is golf. Um, I didn't realize golf looked like this. And that in itself is one person who potentially has had their perception converted. So mm -hmm. a lot of people that are invested in that initial perception change and we're just part of that, that, that wave, I guess. Mm -hmm. yeah, excellent. Well, we have our first live question as well, which seems very apt. Kenny Palace, who runs the Lynx Diary. Um, how do you choose who to collaborate with? Do you have any tips? Thank you for the question, Kenny. Uh, anyone want to answer this one? Yeah, uh, yeah, well, thoughts? First of all, I hello, hello, Kenny. Nice to be tuning in. Um, Kenny's project with Lynx Diary is like absolutely beautiful project. We love it. Um, I think that what they, well, I know what they're doing is is a great example of where perceptions can be changed because we're seeing golf in a editorial manner and not in what, you know, you'd see on the majority of golf club websites, um, you know, around the country. Um, and I love the storytelling narrative. And I guess going into answering that question, I mean, Tips on why on uh, how uh, we choose to collaborate. We've um, we've been in the fortunate position um, with uh, the following up of Adidas, you know, putting that on a lot of people's radar um, to have been offered the opportunity to collaborate with people. And whilst it is incredibly, um, uh, you know, it's an amazing thing that someone wants to work with you. We're we're so selective, and I mm. think that selective element is is essentially a like a key tenant of our brand because it's not about saying yes or no because we don't do or don't like what you do it's just about saying we only want to run projects that we can actually tell narratives behind and have genuine narratives like with the beautiful game the three irons on the shirt like there was like so many verticals within that collab that if you dig into that you realize there's a there's genuinely a story there so the idea of coming out with something that would just be as simple as 
two brand logos together on a few polos and, and you know, come buy this because it's going to sell out doesn't interest us. So we're working on, on trying to find brands that have stories that might not even be in golf that we can then leverage together to create something that will actually be emotive and interesting for our customers and their customers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. Nicole, I mean, over the years, I get the sense that you've done, you've got, a lot, you've had a lot of clients, but you've also done collaborations in many sorts of different ways. I mean, even with what you've done with recent films, as a kind of, I guess, a collaboration, yeah. and and what you've done with some of the media agencies in, in the UK as well. What would be your advice on this? Yeah, I guess um, it's about thinking about your brand DNA and thinking about what that partnership would represent. Um, I completely agree with Jojo about storytelling. Storytelling is so important in any collaboration and it has to work both ways. You know, there has to be something, a hook within it that makes it authentic. It's all about that authenticity. And the collaborations that we've done, so in terms of the film that I'm doing, um, you know, when I was first approached to do the film, I said no, because I didn't think it was the right thing for me. And it wasn't at the time. It was only later down the line that I felt I could bring anything to it. So I guess from a personal point of view, I've had to look at whether or not it's something that would work for me in the long in the long run, um, which it has. And, and it will <laughs> when it's eventually shown. Um, but it's yeah, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into collaborations and ironing out the uh, wrinkles Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it has to be worth that investment of time and yeah, the end product as well is mm-hmm. it's key to the success of everything really. Can you give me a both then, um, what's your score for how good the golf industry is currently at storytelling? What would you give me a score out of 10? I'd, I'd, I mean, I'd say it would definitely be around the average mark um, relative to the other industries. But the main reason being is that I think people's storytelling of golf is like uh, always built around how did someone go from being not so good to being really good? This is how they, they wore this performance. They hit, used this incredible new club. They did, you know, played at this crazy course. And like for us, it's we love the idea of celebrating people scoring well and and and, but ultimately it's about enjoying and you know going back to you know what the links diary have done like there's other magazines out there as well that i i think are the storytellers about this small little municipal course in in california or this course in you know scotland and it's about you you're getting dressed in the morning um and uh what you chose the night before and the car ride over and you ribbing your mates about who's gonna shank it and and that's what's exciting i think with golf but the golf industry in general tends to show you know a specific type of man usually swinging a golf club hard um to try and hit the ball as far as they can and it's not it's it's not specifically that always like you know we've got to give credit where credit's due because it is evolving but that's definitely been the narrative for, for a long time Mm-hmm. Would you have yeah. I guess a number, a score out of ten? Yeah, I'd say, oh, I, I'd say three, three or four. But yeah, yeah I was okay. going, I was going for around a five maximum. Yeah. Um, I guess I come from twenty years of having seen it done terribly to <laughs> to, to to a mom a modern view of actually things are changing. So I like to think I bring a kind of a positive perspective to everything. Yeah, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think so many, so many of the great stories in golf have never been told. Um, and I think that's something that is really interesting is that, you know, we, we as an industry and a sport have clung on to our heritage so hard 
that we actually stopped evolving and we stopped changing. And you see that kind of like in traditional men's clothing. You know, there was kind of a point in history and fashion evolution where they went, oh, that looks nice. And then just didn't change the way that people dressed. You know, they didn't, it didn't move in parallel with, you know, contemporary fashion. And that's what's really interesting for me about where we are now is that for once, it seems to me that, that golf fashion and fashion are starting to align you know, there is that kind of shift. I mean, there hasn't been really since like the 60s, you know, it's when the polo shirt was first introduced, that was it. And okay, that's what we'll wear now. Um, and for women, I think it's been even worse. There's just, there's no evolution in terms of style or practicality or any of those things. So, but yeah, think, story storytelling, I think is just, it's so important. Um, yeah. I think to add on to that as well, the reason why you may, we maybe saw um, a dying out of that evolution within the game of golf is because you look back at the 60s and 70s and yeah. you'd see Frank Sinatra play golf. Um, you know, now, nowadays, I say that in like a slightly depressing way, but today you will see, we'll see all the time, you know, musicians post about playing golf now, actors, um, you know, people that you would put in the cool category. Um, they were now they now want to align with the sport and are willing to put that in front of their follower base where previously they would try and treat it more of a, a kind of a secret that they that, that they would play not talk about but they enjoyed but now it's about saying well no actually I'm pretty happy talking about this I don't you know and it's accepted you know in a kind of a weird way and therefore what they then choose to wear is not going to be the off-the-shelf stuff because they are inherently stylish people and so mm -hmm. when you have a GQ photo shoot with Macklemore, um, you know, talking about golf, he's going to dress in a cool way. So it's about the people and the the personalities that are showing themselves in the in the world of golf as much as is it about providing clothing for them to wear and the lines of the game. Mm -hmm. Who's yeah. Macklemore? Is 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 he a is he a new a new singer? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I mean it's it's um, this is fantastic. Like, I really love this discussion. I love, love how we're getting into this. I mean, it's just brilliant hearing both of your perspectives on this. And I definitely think you know Kenny and, and the team over at Links Diary. You're already on this, and you understand that there's this opportunity here. But it sounds like you're definitely on it. So keep going. And it sounds like we've set up a new collab there because Nicole, you say there's lots of good stories I haven't been told yet. Kenny and the guys can maybe tell some of those stories. So maybe you guys <laughs> maybe you should connect offline and suggest some of those stories that you're you're aware of. Oh, uh, definitely. Yeah, I've got a few. I've got a few up my sleeve, which I'm really excited to share. Yeah, excellent. Okay, cool. Um, Kenny, yeah, thanks a lot for taking the time to join us and for sending over the question. And one more question in this sort of theme that we're looking at in terms of business growing here. Can you be niche and be successful? Um, Adam, I'd asked this question in advance. Do you, th we think maybe there seems to be this sort of feeling that you need to be able to crack all of golf. Maybe that's, maybe that's our perspective. Maybe it's not true, but I think we do sense that within the industry. What's your thoughts on that, Nicole? I, I I was thinking about the way that brands market their products, obviously, before we came and, and to do this chat today. And I think one of my biggest criticisms of brands in the golf industry in general is that they want to market to golfers and, and they don't think about their audiences or what segment of the audience they should be targeting. And, you know, is there a particular product that fits with a different segment within their own range? They, they just don't segment it in the way that a marketeer would. You know, I'm not I, I don't like just throwing the money at golf 
because golf is even if you look at the female market you can't just say let's market to women who play golf you know I'm, I'm very different from you know the people I'm very different from the people I play with at the golf club and you know we're not going to buy the same products or you know I'm not a good golfer there's no point in marketing like a really expensive putter to me because I'm never going to buy it because it's not going to improve my game so I think it's you know, it, it's all about segments of the market. And and I do think that you can be niche and be successful. You know, it's, I, I think in a way, I wouldn't want certain segments of the market to be buying particular brands. You know, you look at kind of the damage that's been done over the years to brands like, you know, Burberry would be a great example in the 90s. And it became like kind of a chaff staple. And it went from being this really classic kind of niche wonderful british brand into something that you know the brand image was completely destroyed and that's what happens when you go from being niche to very mainstream and i don't think that i think brands need to think really carefully about their audiences and segmenting that and who they're talking to mm -hmm. and that allows you to be niche and successful i think mm -hmm. you have almost perfectly led on to the next section and the next question. So thank you very much for that, Nicole. And there was no, there was no preempting about this, but let's go on then and talk about the motivators for consumers going forward into the future. And in particular, we'll call it the unknown golf market. So how, did, how does golf approach that golf audience that doesn't sit within these traditional demographics like you were talking about there? Um, there's, there's maybe not quite as much known about them yet. And as you say, it appears like the golf industry is finally wising up that you do need to start to think about segmenting. You know, not all women golfers are the same as one example, um, but also um, that you can actually go into some of these niches here. And also you can test things and actually use evidence for making your decisions about things. Um, Jojo, starting with you then, what's your thoughts on this? Like, how do we approach this audience? Because uh, that you might say that that's maybe an audience that you guys have targeted with Manners. I think, um, I think the term like targeting now is becoming a very, very loose, um, loose, loose term in that people assume you just put an ad on um, Instagram or Facebook and you just mm -hmm. go, right, I'll put X amount of money into this. I'd like to target this, 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 and this person. Mm -hmm. But ultimately that doesn't, it doesn't produce the results at all that it used to. Um, and it doesn't matter how sexy your brand might be. Um, it's still very, very difficult to convert. The, the, way that, um, the way that you need to approach anything now, doesn't matter if it's golf or not, is to be brand led. And you know, essentially you need to, which people aren't really willing to do, invest in things in the long term. Um, people want immediate wins and that might be fine, but the only route you can go down there is a discount and that's a race to the bottom. And I see lots and lots of good brands who are clearly beholden to some kind of, whether it's shareholder or expectations on their own back, um, to revenue figures that are coming at the um, at the expense of brand um, sentiment. And so I think from, from my side, in terms of this new generation, they are the most aware um, generation that has ever been on, on this idea of like, I'm being sold um, something. And the only way you're going to tap into that market is through organic content, um, being smart on platforms like TikTok or, you know, things like that, which are obviously new. Um, and then finally, you know, building the trust. And that trust has been built by having a stable foundation of good content, product, and the fact that their mate told them about it. And that for them is enough. 
tick a box, you know, and, and sell something. Mm-hmm. I love that you called me out on that with the, the word target because the word target wasn't in our question before. It came out of my mouth, and as soon as I said it, I remembered the um, Imagine Insights report that I read last month, and one of the things that came out of that loud and clear was Gen Z don't like to be targeted. <laughs> so so it's basically exactly what you've described. You've done it a lot more eloquently than I would have done, so that's a, a great answer. Thank you. Um, and sort of on the, continuing on that thread then, Nicole, so if we're thinking about consumer brands that we think in golf, they seem to sort of traditionally focus on you can get better at golf via our product. And obviously you see that from a, you know, the, the equipment manufacturers, technical side of thing, even the clothing, you know, it's like mm. you'll play better golf if you buy this technical 200 pounds jacket or whatever it is. And um, how do you see brand strategy going forward? Because, you know, I think Jojo was starting to touch on it there. I'm curious to see if you agree, you know, does it align with that motivator only or are we missing these, some of these other key drivers, you know? is it other things that people are going to care about more going forward than just this will make me better at golf? I think that brands and the authenticity of brands is becoming increasingly important. I think that with um, with your larger brands, particularly equipment manufacturers, um, they're always going to sell product based on the fact that they're going to make you better. It's a bit how, um, you know, if you look at washing powder and the way that that's evolved in terms of their marketing, that now is more about brand than it is about cleaning your, your washing. It's, you know, it's made such a massive shift from, um, you know, from being performance led, which golf equipment is ultimately to being more about a lifestyle. And I think that, you know, particularly even from a personal point of view, um, if I look through, I look through my Instagram feed to see who I'm actually following in terms of brands and it's brands I care about it's brands who add value it's brands whose ethos means something to me i might not be buying their product today but i will certainly be buying their products in the future or you know or it will lead me to another brand that you know is ecologically sound or environmentally friendly because that's the thing that i'm interested in as in as an individual and i think that's where brand evolution and um storytelling around a brand and brand credentials are going to become increasingly important just to differentiate yourself from everybody else Jojo, would you agree? Um, I do think that brands need to work a hell of a lot harder um, now. Um, like I, I kind of alluded to before, I think um, I definitely agree with the fact that now people will choose to align to fewer brands and potentially that then converts into a, a bigger average spend on that brand per year or, or, or and in that trusted element, especially in menswear, to be honest, people like to... They like to buy into something. They they know the trousers fit. They know the tops how they like it, and you know they'd rather not risk buying another product from another brand um, when they know that they already have something that works. Um, so I do I, I do think that's an element. But ultimately, right now, golf as a whole is focused on um, on getting better um, and buy this. But that's definitely more focused on the technical um, the um, equipment side of the, the sport. I think. Mm-hmm. On that theme again, dress code, dress code, dress rules. Uh, they are two different things potentially. Some clubs choose to use the word rules, and maybe that's deliberate. Um, do you think that there's an issue with dress code putting younger people off golf, or do you think it's dress rules and it's the terminology, or do you think it's just bad clothing options? Do you think that plays a plays a role in it? Jojo, what's your thoughts on that? 
I I would say it definitely has a, a role. Um, I think our stance on it is there is definitely, and our stance is obviously not prescriptive, but there is definitely elements of it that we believe are, are good for the game and that ultimately golf is a game of etiquette, um, not necessarily because you need to be super posh or whatever to, to, to play the game, but because there is a safety element. You know, you shout four because you might be hitting the ball towards someone. You know, there's certain things like that that are important. But I think when it comes to clothing, our belief is if you aren't, if you are not affecting someone else's day, someone's safety, someone's experience, enjoyment of, of their round of golf, you know, why why not? You know, I'm not advocating jeans on the on the course. You know, there is a line there, and I think right now it's it's certainly too far one way. Um, but I'm also not suggesting that just turning up, you know, in t-shirts and a pair of tracksuits is, is also okay. Like there is an element, and I think you define that as a brand, at least from our side, by producing clothing that we say, we like this, we think it's suitable for golf. Mm. Um, and hopefully we can start to um, change people's perceptions about what could that threshold could look like. Mm -hmm. Nicole, we've got a question here from Renal. Renal, thank you very much for joining us tonight again. And thank you for the question. It's on the same theme. So how can you recommend that we go about changing cultures in sectors in the golf industry or in companies that are resistant? And I mean, that might be just something that you even experience with clients or potential clients, Nicole. What's your thoughts on this? Uh, well, thank you for the question, Renal. Um, it's, it's a tough question. <laughs> um, I think that changing culture in any business or any golf club that is happy with the way that things are is, is a practically impossible task. Um, and I think that is part of the problem with golf in general, is that if people are happy with the way that things are, they have no incentive to change. Um, so I think that's where the biggest barrier to change in terms of culture comes. Um, if you have one brave person who's prepared to put their head above the parapet and advocate for change, then you more often than not, you're going to find people who will follow. It's just having that person there who is prepared to stand up and say, well, actually, I'm, I'm different and, you know, I need to be represented within the industry that I work in. Um, sadly, I mean, I, I look at the way that golf has changed in my career and it has changed quite significantly and it's clearly changing in the right direction um but there's still so much room for improvement and there's incredible agencies that i've worked with outside of golf who actually come into companies and help them look at change and their culture and where they want to be and how to get to those places you know i'd love to see more of that happen within golf but at the moment i think our major challenge in terms of golf is not attracting talent we don't attract talent from outside of the industry people look at golf and think well actually i know what golf looks like and i don't really want to work in that industry because i expect it's x y and z and therefore they, they never consider it as a viable option you know most people who've made a, a career of the golf industry have ended up here either by accident or because they're golfers there's no kind of like gray area in the middle i ended up here by accident um I would never have chosen to work in the golf industry. I would never have seen it as a place for me to work. Um, but now that I'm part of it, you know, for me, being visible, doing things like this, showing the outside world that golf doesn't look exactly the way that they think it does is really important. And that's my contribution to changing the culture within golf is by doing these things. They, they terrify me. 
you know it's the whole idea of doing this is way beyond my comfort zone i've sat behind them i've put words in other people's mouths for a living that's what i do so i'm quite happy having that role in the background but um i think it's really important to be visible and to, as i said to attract a really diverse talent base and the more that we can do that and get you know a diverse people in senior positions within businesses that is where change will come it will come from the top down not from the bottom up i think Jojo, mm -hmm. in your experience since you've set up the company in the golf industry what percentage of people have you met in any you know industry conversations or collaborative conversations that's not that doesn't appear that they've been in golf their whole life what that work within golf now yeah um I think I think it's rare to find someone in the golf industry that that isn't there because they're like I just love golf and like I mean ultimately I set I set this business up because I decided I w I wanted to work in golf and I wanted to run my own brand and I love golf I've played my whole life um, and so it was like right well you know how do I work in golf I was definitely never going to become a professional golfer so maybe this was the, the right opportunity and and you know. I think you mentioned there, Nicole, like this idea of the kind of people that are going into the sport, whether it's because they like golf, they found it by mistake or, or not. Like I'm, I have an agency background. My, one of my co-founders is a creative director, very, very creative and incredibly smart guy. And the other one comes from a fashion background. And these mm -hmm. are all three, three people, um, you know, relatively young who decided to get into golf. Um, that probably had, has not happened very often. And is probably why we were able to put something together that was very different to the offering that was already there. Um, so I do agree that I think it will come from the top down to a degree. And that's like when the Adidas team took a bet on us and, and let us work with them. You know, that was a top down decision. But then there's also all these roots from underneath of, you know, younger founders like me, myself and our, our co-founders mm -hmm. trying to make a change that are definitely coming from the bottom as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Follow up there from Renal. I'm seeing you nodding, Nicole, to both what Jojo was saying and yeah. I think also to Renal. Um, this is an opportunity for the industry and it's a tough one to solve. We've talked about it in some of the gather content pieces and um, the white papers that have gone out. And it, it's, a, it's a definite challenge within the golf industry of both um, the, the brand image of golf as a whole, people looking in and going, actually, that's something that I would be quite interested in getting in and there's, there's big opportunities there but then also the 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 opportunities for pro progression in career and the opportunities for salaries comparative to, to other industries it, it looks like you might agree with what Ronald's uh posing there as a question yeah um i'm, I'm gonna have to put my glasses on to read it properly but <laughs> would it help would, if you're in one yeah I, I think for me the thing that would help more than anything in the world is not to have golf in the title of job adverts you know, if you are advertising for a position within a golf business and one of the criteria is that you play golf, and if we believe the statistics in terms of participation numbers, whether that's by ethnicity or gender, you're immediately, like, you're shrinking your pool of talent, like, before they've even finished reading the job advert. Mm -hmm. You know, if we think more carefully about the way that we're actually promoting the positions we have within businesses, I, I hired um, a new digital person um, about 12 months ago, I think it was, didn't tell her. I didn't even say what industry we worked in. Nothing in the job description mentioned sport, didn't mention golf. I just wanted someone who was really good at their job. 
because you can come into golf and yes, there's terminology and there's things that you have to say, right? Because we have our own language, but you can't, you know, I, I need somebody who is an expert. I want someone to baffle me with their knowledge of social media and channels that I've never been on to and opportunities that, you know, we that I don't understand, you know, because that's the only way we can evolve is by bringing in younger, more experienced people who bring a, an, another level of expertise to the industry. And if we don't keep on, you know, building our talent pool, then we're stuffed. Yeah, no, I love that approach that you've taken. Carry yeah, on, Jojo. To echo that sentiment, I mean, when, when we hire, we, we've hired people recently and our job description is, you know, product developer at yeah. our company name, right? And it's not a golf product developer or not. It's it's also specifically mentioned in our job spec. Um, you do not have to play golf uh, or know how to play golf. However, we will um, give you a budget to, to get lessons yeah. you know, because if you choose to, um, to, to work at, at our company and are, and you're interested in in joining the sport we want to be a big part of help making that you know possible so um that's definitely something that we we would echo as well i think yeah. can i just add that i think that within larger organizations as well i know there are certain organizations that have been actually using this approach to bring in talent from the outside and what they're finding when they get here is they can't do the job they've been employed to do. And that is a real problem in terms of culture. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna say who I'm talking about. <laughs> I'll tell you afterwards. Um, but there, there are definitely, there are, there are situations I'm aware of where they've brought in these incredibly talented experts who are really good at their jobs. And then they arrive yeah. here and they're like, well, what do you mean I can't do this? This is, this is how we do this. This is how I yeah. do my job. You know, you've hired me to come and do this and you're now actually just shackling me and not giving me the opportunity to show you what you're, what you're paying me for. Yeah. And yeah. that is just, you know, I sit on Zoom calls when I can see like all these faces around me when I'm asking questions and I'm going, I can't believe they don't do this. And, and it's like they're staggered by the fact yeah. that, you know, everything is so stagnant and slow and you know has to be agreed by 10 different people before you know i can get a social media post shared it, it's mm -hmm. it's phenomenal and and it's such a shame because you know it, it comes back to the question again about about cultures um we need to be dynamic and flexible and that means a lot of the older generation not working in these companies organizations anymore if we're going to be dynamic then be dynamic yeah yeah and i think it's about being open i mean uh, i used to think that i was you know quite a young person working in the golf industry yeah, just a I'm few not. years ago and now i look at <laughs> like i have no idea about um you know some of the social media channels that are like you know how big TikTok is i understand what it is why people are on etc cetera, etc cetera, but i'm not immersed in it in any way um but there's you know i'm looking at people now and i'm going there you know people that were 20 years younger than me they came into roles at Scottish Golf, roles at the RNA where I was before and they just brought this completely new perspective to things that I hadn't even considered and at that point I realised like what a huge opportunity that is for the golf industry yeah. like I don't know whether 20 years ago there was people coming in at age 20 and being given that sort of um, opportunity or headspace so I think there has been some progress in that you're recognising the right kind of people to bring in mm -hmm. the challenge as you say and I've noticed it too is that there's still a number of structures that are just that 
they're kind of restrictive. You so you come in, you're the right person, but then you're put inside this glass box and you're kind of like uh, 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 trying to move. Um, so something I'd add to that as well is that um, there's been a I believe there's been a big shift in people's decision making around quality of life and. Previously, people might have gone out and said, right, well, you know, I'm, I've, done, I've got a degree and now I need to go and be an accountant or a you know, estate agent or I've got to be um, a consultant. And, you know, obviously no offense to those industries, but those are definitely ones which are seen to be, you know, office jobs that you have a career ladder in front of you and you might work, work there for a number of years. Whereas I think now people are going, well, what am I interested in? Um, I can take flexible hours with this. I could work remotely. I'm actually happy not to live in London, which has definitely been a huge pull before where people want to live in a city. And a lot of these golf-focused jobs are not based in London because obviously the golf courses aren't there. So I think we are, you're seeing that people are, you know, making the decision going, you know, actually, I, I, I'm happy to live outside of town and work, you know, uh, at whatever golf organization there is because I'd rather have a better quality of life and get to play golf every Friday um, than I would, you know, and earn a little bit less money maybe than I would to go and become a career man at a, a big, you know, legal firm or something similar. Well, talking about the, the future, I'm going to dip into something a wee bit left field here, just because it's something that I know you're interested in, Jojo, and it's, I've got a bit of an interest in it, and it's something I think we're going to end up discussing at some point this year within the Gather community, um, and that's around NFTs and crypto, and there'll be some people watching who might just be like, ah, here we go, but there's also a lot of people, as you will attest to, Jojo, around the world who are fascinated by this space and the, the potential that it might have, um, and in particular, um, you currently write about this. I've been reading a few of your blogs that you've written um, as a, someone who's been re sort of researching, I think, for the sort of past six months. Um, now, for for those who aren't too clued up on it just yet, you know, the world of fashion, uh, obviously the world of art and even sports in particular are now getting hugely involved in um, the NFT world. Gaming itself is also going to be a big part of things going forward. Um, obviously, being a fashion brand, um, being a golfer, and uh, having a bit of an interest in this stuff, what do you think are the opportunities that you're kind of already seeing? And I know we're, as, as everyone talks about the community, it's still early, it's still extremely early, and there is a very volatile space, the crypto space. Um, but we've already seen in the last few months um, the, the Lynx DAO project that popped up in America, seemingly, unless you can prove me wrong, I don't think there was a massive big long lead up where they were you know, priming a huge big community came about extremely fast and before you know it you had you know thousands and thousands of people that were paying for a opportunity at some point down the line to help make a decision about which golf club is purchased presumably in America but I guess it could be anywhere in the world so they have this huge community that are now going to test this new golf ownership golf club ownership model and um, but it seems to me I mean there's there's obviously Bryson's had some NFTs came out last year at Bay Hill um, there's chat that the PGA Tour are now really on this and they're probably going to follow what's been happening with the NBA top shot and the NFL, these kind of things. It makes logical sense that we go into that. I think it's fairly obvious that some of Phil's controversial comments a month or so ago were, were sort of based around the fact that he suddenly realised, hold on a minute, here's the value of some of the assets. For example, famous shots that I've played over the years. A video clip of that shot could be worth X. 
I should really get a portion of that because it was me that played that shot, not the tour. So there's a whole massive debate that could be going on in the background of that PGA Tour level. Just from what you've learned, not just, and I know you're not just looking at sport and NFTs, you're looking at you know art and projects in there. What do you think the opportunities could be for golf going forward? Well, I think if you think about it, um, the way that an NFT works is in some regards is very similar to like a debenture you might have a golf club. You know, you buy in, um, it's a popular golf club, you pay a, a price which is dictated by how popular that club is and the demand and, and that might be X amount of pounds and then the, the club gets even more popular over the next 10 years, you decide to leave and actually the value of your debenture might have gone up. Um, and in that turn, that's a that's you know that's a profitable trade, and you've also in the same time enjoyed um, the experience of that golf club in the last ten years. So when it comes to NFTs, they they give you um, a very similar experience in that you buy into something, and at any point in time, you can then liquidate that and sell out of it. But when you sell out, you lose the utility um, or membership that it provides. Um, why is it relevant? Well, I think because if something like LinksDAO is successful, it can prove that not only did they raise $10, $12 million in a very short amount of time to go and purchase a club, but they then give their membership direct ability to vote on anything. And that vote is is held based on your, I own one, one membership, that's one token of vote. And they can, using the blockchain, they can verify every single vote that is made. So there's like a real level of accountability there. Um, and it also activates people from all over the world. Like I know, I don't personally own a link style, but I have friends in England who do. They don't live in the States. They will one day hope to visit that club and walk in to a like-minded individual group of people um, and be like, hey, I'm a member here, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think, I think what it does is it really promotes golf into a much younger audience it um, allows an element of accountability um, and um, authenticity around the space, if done correctly. And, um, and I think it's exciting. I think it shows golf in a way which people didn't probably think was possible. Um, there's a lot more that can come out of it with the art angle and, and things, but I, I think that's still, that's still yet to be proven um, from mm -hmm. a specific golf application. Yeah, so are you planning on having a manners golf clothed person walking through the sandbox at some point anytime soon on the metaverse with the because adidas have done a bit of a dip into the metaverse in terms of their collaboration with the, the board ape absolutely yeah no i think well I mean, adidas have been best in class with a lot of what they've done on the nft space they're very early with it even earlier than what you could consider now i think that um any brand would be um would be wise to be looking into it us included um, I think that the most important thing, though, is there's more to lose than there is to gain. And right now, if you get it wrong, you could really the backlash on your brand. Um, it could be very a very very severe one. The the upside is you know cash, right? But really, what's what's the importance of a quick sellout collection of uh, NFTs when actually in the six months time when you don't prove any of the utility you said you would, it doesn't come out. Then that's going to come back to to bite your brand. Um, in the ass and, and ultimately become a, more of a deterrent. So I think you have to be very cautious about how you go out and do this and not get, you know, blindside yourself by the, you know, the, the dollar signs um, and focus on building something with genuine utility, genuine value um, for the long term. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Very interesting. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. Nicole, what's more important for the next 10 years, the product or the marketing? And was it the same 
for the last 10 years. Wow, that's broad. <laughs> <laughs> it may be too broad. It may be too broad. Give, give me, give me your first, your first thoughts on that. Um, my first thoughts on that. Um, I mean, how much more can golf products evolve? I mean, I think maybe we'll be going back to old technology that used to work. Um, where, I mean, where does product development go in terms of equipment? You know, I know there will always be something new or there'll always be some sort of new technology to market. But I think if my gut feeling on this is that the two go hand in hand, you know, there's absolutely no point in having a great marketing campaign for a product that's terrible. You know, it, it just, you know, and there's no point in having an amazing product that nobody knows about. So I think it's that balance between the two. But, you know, if you want to stay ahead of the game in terms of equipment, especially, then, you know, R&D has to be your primary focus, I think, really. Um, but, yeah, marketing to run parallel to it. But I do think it's a lot different from how it used to be. You know, I think that nowadays people are a lot more savvy um, a lot more aware of aware of the marketing campaigns that are being targeted at them if we're talking about that age group. Um, but, you know, if you go out there and tell somebody that this particular product is going to get you an extra 10 yards, there is still a certain percentage of um, golfers out there who are going to buy it, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> regardless of whether or not it works or they do the research. It's just, you know, some brands are so strong that they have the power to say those things without necessarily being able to back it up. Mm -hmm. there's a nice comment from kenny so um thank you very much for that kenny i'm glad that you are enjoying this um and it's, it's really helping and um, we've just got five minutes left and um it's always a shame when i have to say that because i'm really enjoying this conversation we could keep going deep into many of the things we've already talked about but i would like to just touch on this before we close out tonight so just in terms of your own learning and your development and how you've come to where you are just now um nicole we've had other guests on this show if you call it that um that you've personally mentored in and what's the sort of best example that you can give of mentoring or support that you've had personally and um, that, that's really you think has contributed to helping grow uh, the company over the years um i i suppose when i came into the industry there weren't a lot of women who were doing what i did it is the reality of it and um for a long time I just kind of had my head down and got on with my job and didn't really know where I was going or what I was going to do and there's there's one man in particular who just he saw he saw in me something I didn't see in myself and although he would he would hate me saying that he mentored me because he didn't <laughs> he was the one person that he's been my cheerleader for my whole career and whenever there's been an opportunity where I'm questioning whether or not it's the right thing for me to do he's the person in the background shoving me <laughs> saying, just, mm -hmm. go on you've got to keep going you've got to keep forward and you know I, I think you know there are great opportunities now where you can have mentoring with the golf industry and it, it's so crucial and you know there are points that I've I've floundered I really have you know not knowing where where to go or who to talk to because when you're a woman at the top of a business within golf you know you can't be seen to be weak you, you just can't um and that's unfortunate in itself but yeah there's been a lot of cheerleaders who've kept me going um and I've enjoyed the mentoring that I've done and I'm going to be doing some more later in this year with the Golf Foundation with their um, girls leadership project. Um, 
because like I said, it's important to be visible. It's important for me to show that you can have a successful career um, and yeah, rise to the top of golf really. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Jojo, you know, if there was someone listening to this that um, either now or in the, the recording afterwards and they're, they've got this idea and um, they're very passionate about doing something, they're inspired by, you know, a brand like Manners, for example, that sort of stepped out and said, we're going to be a bit different and we're going to try and drag elements of the golf industry forward into the future. But they don't really know many people within the industry and maybe maybe they're looking for someone that can give them a bit of advice. Where would they start with something like that? I think it's super important to make a good first impression. Um, when, uh, if you if you look to take someone's time up um, and when you, when they do give you that time and you don't bring what you've all you've got to the table because you're trying to rush into the conversation then you lose that opportunity and and uh, you know i think come up with whatever your concept is put it together in a way which you feel is succinct enough um that respects their time and you know someone who you're looking to to leverage information off right they're most likely going to be busy people um, and uh, yeah, and just be just be grateful and, and you know please and thank yous don't go um, don't go amiss um, and yeah just just reach out. I think it's really easy now to to make a connection um, whether that be LinkedIn or not. And, you know everyone gets invitations on LinkedIn, um, but it's so easy to differentiate the ones that you just go like oh like you know that's just that's just not really of interest to someone who's genuinely looking for information and insight. And if I have anything to offer, that's I always think that's insane. But you know, I lean on some really, really smart people um, for information that I don't know and, and want to learn. And I, and the one thing I always go by is you've, you know, my dad always says to me, "You've got two ears and one mouth." You know, you've got to listen as, twice as much as you speak because um, you know you'd be surprised at what what's said and what you'd miss if you're not willing to listen. Mm -hmm. Oh, you almost rounded out the perfect closing speech there by saying, <laughs> I've thoroughly enjoyed using my two ears. And hopefully for all the people that have been watching, listening more than I've been speaking tonight, um, it's been just an absolute pleasure listening to you both. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, you have not just done what you've done tonight in terms of giving your thoughts and your, your mentoring, but this is something that people can and will watch in the coming weeks. We have, um, on many occasions, referred people back to earlier mentor room lives that are still sitting on our LinkedIn feed and said, go back and have a look at some of that because they've touched on those topics. So we'll be doing the same about with this recording that we have from tonight. Um, and just before we close off tonight, is there any sort of final word to the audience or to people that are watching or anyone in the industry, any sort of phrase or comment or advice or motivational statement that either of you would like to make there is no major pressure to come up with anything magic if there's any closing thoughts so i just want to give you the chance yeah i just adding on to what jojo was saying about um you know open opening a door is that when you do manage to open the door make make sure you're thinking about what you want to walk away from that conversation knowing like have a plan you know don't just go in there blind and try and get as much as you can it's, it's work out what you actually want to know and make sure you leave that conversation with the information that you started out to get mm -hmm. yeah I just, by, yeah i just finished by saying thank you this is a really really professional mm -hmm. setup um and uh you know it, it, i can't believe it's been an hour already so um it went by <laughs> like so yeah i felt like the conversation was flowing good, yeah good. happy to chat yeah. thank you for inviting me yeah
yeah, it's been fantastic. Like, I can't wait to share this and, and recommend that people check out, particularly certain sections that are going to be really relevant to some of the challenges and um, some of the ideas and dreams that people have within the golf industry. We can point them towards parts within this conversation which are really going to help them. It's been another hour of my mini MBA that I'm creating by having, hosting <laughs> these conversations and learning all these new things. Um, and I'm looking forward, we'll have, I'll have the chance hopefully to follow up with both of you about various different things um, that we've talked about tonight. So. Thanks again for taking the time. Everyone that's watching, it's been an absolute pleasure. Everyone that's going to watch this when it's on a recording on LinkedIn, I hope you've enjoyed the conversation and you've learned something. And please reach out to Nicole or Jojo if there's things that we've talked about tonight that you think, oh, I'd love to, to dig into that more. I'm sure that we'd both be very happy to, to connect on LinkedIn and speak to you. And obviously, please go and check out Mediate and Manners Golf as well. It's been a pleasure and good night. Mm -hmm.